we would hear from the Gospel of Mark, the familiar passage quoting the Isaiah we just heard, every valley shall be exalted and every hill made low, the rough places plain, the crooked straight, about John the Baptist preaching repentance and forgiveness in the wilderness. But I want to share with you another passage from today's lectionary readings that comes from the second letter of Peter, the third chapter, writing to people in Asia Minor who are being subjected to many different kinds of doctrines, wondering how to keep this thing called the Christian church alive, and also wondering what it means to await the second coming of Christ. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should teach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience, the slowness of our Lord as salvation. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us, let the people say, thanks be to God. And let us pray. Loving God, we ask that you would be with us as we light these candles of hope and love this morning, that you would allow them to burn in our lives, that you would wake us up, that you would keep us watchful, and help us to see where we may turn things around, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts might be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you know that our seminarian, Anna, and I just finished a course at the Divinity School at Harvard called Religion in America's Conscience and at the Ballot Box. Basically, it's a course about how religion has intermingled and infused our politics for the past four centuries. Um, And just for full disclosure, Anna actually did the actual writing and hard work for the class and turned in a paper on Friday and wrote weekly responses. I was merely an auditor benefiting from the readings and discussions. In this course, we looked at politics through the lens of the religious right, the civil rights movement, the new religious left, like the Reverend Dr. William Barber, the African-American church, the Roman Catholics in this country, Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans, secularists, First Amendment scholars, and many others. And for the final class, we read speeches and letters going back to the 1600s, starting with the Puritan founder John Winthrop's model of Christian charity, about how people should form a spiritually inspired, compassionate society in this new world. We skipped ahead 200 years to Abraham Lincoln's very short 
second inaugural address in early March 1865, in which he quotes the Bible no less than four times, calling us to the better angels of our nature and closing with these still-stirring words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds. We skipped ahead another 90 years to Eleanor Roosevelt writing a column in 1932 about the universality of religion and how it shapes us as spiritual beings no matter how we start out, just as her aristocratic blend of Episcopalianism shaped her spiritual life into becoming an ethical, compassionate, and community-minded person. We then went to candidate John F. Kennedy in 1960, speaking to the very Protestant Houston Ministerial Alliance about his legitimacy to become the first Roman Catholic president. We heard George W. Bush in 2001 speaking at the National Cathedral and calling us to moral cohesion in the disorienting days following 9-11, and candidate Barack Obama speaking in 2008 about how to navigate the tricky waters of being both religious and political beings. As most conversations in this class, our 90-minute discussion of these talks went all over the map. And at the conclusion, a very wise and seasoned Unitarian Universalist minister among us, who was also auditing the class, observed something that many of us had noticed in these talks, that each of these speakers spoke to what they considered the extraordinariness of their time. The extraordinary things that aroused fear, concern, uncertainty, wondering what's going to happen next. Things that felt pressing and urgent and often unprecedented. For John Winthrop, it was the tyrannical clutches of religion and politics in the old world and how to break away and test this Protestant notion of free will. For Lincoln, it was a country broken by the deadliest war it's ever seen and how to unify it once again. For Eleanor Roosevelt, it was the greatest economic depression of modern times and the war clouds of fascism brewing over Europe. For JFK, he specifically mentions the spread of communist influence, particularly in Cuba, the hungry children across Appalachia, old people who cannot pay their doctor bills, families forced to give up their farms, and as he put it, an America with too many slums, too few schools, and too late to the moon and outer space. For George W. Bush, it was a country stunned by the largest international terrorist act on its soil and fear of what else was to come. And for Obama, just nine years ago, it was the national economy on the verge of collapse, an increasingly divided electorate, and the threat of terrorism at home and abroad. In observing this, our Unitarian Universalist minister quoted his 19th century forebearer, Theodore Parker, whose church is just a few miles away in West Roxbury. And in 1841, Parker preached a very long sermon for an ordination in which he talked about the permanent and the transient in religion. He said, There seem to have been, ever since the time of Christianity's earthly founder, two elements, the one transient and the other permanent. The one, the transient, is the thought, the folly, the uncertain wisdom, the theological notions, the impiety of humanity. And on the other, the permanent, 
is the eternal truth of God. As you and I hear this familiar and well-worn scripture from Isaiah, as well as the texts from Mark and and 2 Peter, I wonder what you and I consider are permanent and transient elements of our lives, our spiritual lives, our material lives. For the prophet Isaiah, the transient was about a people in exile, perhaps people like our modern Syrian friends and relations. The Judeans were mourning the destruction of their city, their temple, as they wandered and lived among strange lands and strange people and oppressive rulers. For the Gospel of Mark, it was the oppression of an all-encompassing empire, an empire of brutal occupation, a sense of urgency about bringing to light the ministry and promise of a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. And for the writer of the letters of Peter, it was whether this new religion could hold in a pagan world in that same all-encompassing empire. As I look at the news, even just this past week, and think about what's transient in our lives, I see the question of whether trickle-down economics actually work or if it's an utter failure and if we're ever going to seriously address the issue of how the rich in this country keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. The transient in our time and day is how to provide accessible and affordable health care for everyone in a capitalist economy. The transient is revealing how men and some women have abused their power in the workplace and in working relationships and how we may bring people to full accountability, or as the text would urge us, to full repentance. The transient is whether a baker open for business, seemingly for all, can refuse to make a cake for an openly gay couple when an anti-discrimination ordinance is the law of his particular land. These are some of the transient fleeting issues that you see in the media and I see every week but they point to more permanent, enduring qualities about God, about the teachings of Jesus Christ, and whether you and I will keep illuminating them in the world. I believe the permanent is the question of what kind of economy God wants. Is it one in which all of God's children may benefit from the resources of our earthly home and the ingenuity of all the human family? Is it a world in which we learn to treat all of our neighbors, all of our siblings in this family with dignity, respect, fairness, and kindness? How we as a country will treat our neighbors who are allies and enemies and refugees and immigrants? How we on different sides of the political divide will treat one another with kindness and fairness and dignity? But even more specifically, how you and I are going to treat the people who live next door or the cashier at the market or the person asking for money on the street? or even the person who cuts us off in traffic, or the person at work or school who is the most difficult, unbearable to be around. Now, this past week, I have tried to just think about how to get away from the bad news that keeps being spilled out again and again, playing to our fears, our insecurities, our uncertainties. I actually believe that if the media had the power to report all the news in the world, the good news might outweigh the bad news. That's my own contention. But my escape this week was to watch the 12-year-old BB series, Planet Earth. 
in which through the magic of camera technology they take the viewer to places where most humans never tread. To the harsh 60 below winter in Antarctica where male emperor penguins nurture the eggs that will be born in the spring. To parched herds of animals trekking across the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa and then once they find water, watching elephants frolicking and swimming in it. Or one of the wildest species of birds on the floor of the tropics showing off their mating dance to the very few females around. Or giant cranes crossing the Himalayas. Or hundreds of baboons in the northern Ethiopian mountains living at altitudes of five to 15,000 feet. It helps me, all of this, to pull back and try to get a God's eye view of what is going on. To remember that this planet, this galaxy, this universe is much older than I or my family. It's much bigger than my petty problems or even the problems specific to our country or to the leaders of this world. And I continue to marvel that the miracle of this planet and all its life forms exist at all. It increases my belief in a divine creator. I'm also aware that we, humankind, have the greatest capacity to destroy this global ecosystem or make it uninhabitable for human beings and many other animals for centuries to come. And so I believe that you and I are called to live somewhere between this kind of wonder at God's view of the world and vigilance about what God would have us do while we inhabit it. I do believe that our job is to keep lighting candles in the dark rather than to curse the darkness, to show kindness and compassion wherever we can, to elect politicians and support policies that encourage and support the welfare of all, to keep hope burning, to keep love burning, to imagine God once again as a vulnerable, helpless infant coming once again in the world and daring to make all the difference in people's lives. And this repentance that Peter and Isaiah speak of is not just personal repentance, but it's collective repentance. What do you and I need to do to help this God-child thrive in the world once this child comes again? What it is you and I need to do to repent, to turn things around in order to bring this kind of heaven onto earth? By teaching this child and all children a religion that's based on love and not one-upsmanship. Love that leads to justice. Love that when practiced correctly, when tempered again and again by the refiner's fire, has the power to bring us into some godly sense of harmony that might have been the original intention for us all along. So in this season of waiting and watching of dark nights and heavy snows... I pray that we may be vigilant, wakeful, watchful for signs of God's love and how you and I are called to provide oxygen for that flame, to resist with love and holiness the powers that seek to extinguish that light. Amen.